Welcome to What's the Deal? It's our investment banking podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of What's the Deal, we'll be exploring the trends that drive deal making today and see what's really transforming industries the world over, from tech disruption to geopolitics and more. Hi, I'm Catherine Guan, a member of JP Morgan Investment Bank's corporate finance advisory team. Today, I'm joined by Robbie Huffines in this episode of What's the Deal? Robbie's a global chair of investment banking at JP Morgan. As a member of our global banking management team, he is the trusted advisor for many of our firm's significant clients. For nearly a decade, Robbie had responsibility for JP Morgan's global healthcare investment banking practice. Robbie, it's so great to have you here with us. It's great to be here. And this episode is part of a special series entitled Conversations with Dealmakers, where we speak with the makers behind the deals and delve into the stories behind the headlines. Robbie, you're known for leading the transformational transactions that help to shape the healthcare sector. You have also witnessed incredible transformation in the investment banking industry itself. What was it like when you first started your career at Alex Brown & Sons? Well, that was back in 1987. Investment banking analyst programs were really brand new, and I joined right out of college. There was a severe correction in the stock market right away. So it was kind of a rocky start, but I learned a lot. Alex Brown was focused on emerging growth companies, principally IPOs for emerging growth companies, although we also did some sell-side M&A. I worked with technology companies. The predictability of those emerging growth companies' cash flows was limited. Desktop computers were brand new. So it wasn't as much financial analysis back then. We spent a lot of time with companies diligencing them and trying to understand whether they were ready for public company and public company investors. So it was really a great learning ground for me. And after such an interesting array of experiences, your first investment banking role, you headed off to business school. Why did you choose to come back into the industry? And what made you choose JP Morgan? When I went off to business school, I thought I might consider some other things, a role directly in finance at a company, perhaps. I managed part of the school's endowment, which gave me some perspective on money management. And while it was intellectually really stimulating, for me, it wasn't as team-oriented as what I'd done in investment banking. And some of the finance jobs I considered were also attractive, but didn't have the variety that investment banking did. So my summer in between my two years of business school, I came to JP Morgan. JP Morgan at that time had a venture capital group. I spent half the summer there and the other half the summer in the M&A group. I decided to come back to JP Morgan after business school on a full-time basis because of the caliber of the people, the global nature of the business, the diversity of the folks, and the respect for the individual. Just great people and, and great clients. From a historical standpoint, in the United States, post the Great Depression, Glass-Steagall had separated investment banks and commercial banks. So Morgan Stanley was a spinoff of JP Morgan. And it was in the late 1980s that the Federal Reserve noticed that European banks, universal banks, were starting to have a real competitive advantage against the large commercial banks. And JP Morgan was viewed to be the strongest of those and the first to be able to underwrite equity and debt in the U.S. And so those new opportunities had just been afforded to JP Morgan. And it just seemed like a, a really great time to join because of the growth prospects that that new regulatory freedom allowed. That must have been a tremendously exciting moment in time. And we know you had previously spent a lot of time with technology companies in the merchant growth category. Could you tell us about why you chose to specialize in healthcare when you joined mergers and acquisitions? 
I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. When I was 15, my dad died of brain cancer, and my mom actually remarried his oncologist. They had fallen in love after that. Uh, that had a huge impact on me. I was really fascinated with the innovation side of healthcare and what it could do for patients. If you were born in the United States in 1900, life expectancy was 50, and today it's in the 80s, and, and innovation has had a lot to do with that. So it was the right choice for me. That certainly is a very powerful motivation. And looking back on the transactions you advised on earlier in your career, what were the moments that really encapsulated for you what it means to be a trusted advisor? Well, I think in the first handful of years, I look back to two transactions. One, we helped Eli Lilly do an IPO and then fully separate Guidant Corporation into a new company. Eli Lilly was focused on pharmaceuticals and Guidant was a medical device amalgamation of businesses that they had. And they consolidated them into one business. And JP Morgan, as I said before, was new to the equities business. So we didn't have the leading role in the IPO, but we had a role. The IPO went well. It was kind of a tough environment for healthcare stocks at the time. And the IPO was afforded a billion-dollar valuation. And this was in 1994. I worked really closely with the company, and we ended up becoming their lead advisor and doing great work with them over the next decade. And by the time they chose to sell the company 10 years later, they were a $25 billion market cap. And I just, I learned a lot about the business through that. We grew with them as they grew in building our business out. Maybe one other I'd mention was hugely impactful experience for me because we stayed disciplined on our financial analysis and we just didn't think the price that was ultimately paid for the asset made sense for our client and we chose not to do it. And I would say the company that we advised and helped not do that deal is still one of my best clients today. So we used to talk back in those early days about a blank tombstone, really advising a company and helping them not make a mistake is often even more important than doing the right transactions. And that's certainly been my experience and a big part of our culture here. Everybody speaks to that. It's been a real part of my experience at JP Morgan. That's such a powerful model that the deals we do together with the client are just as important as the deals that we don't do together. I do want to touch back on the transaction you mentioned around Eli Lilly's separation of guidance. Carvel IPOs followed by splits are amongst of the most memorable transactions I have worked on as well. Just given the nature and complexities of two-step execution, each separation effectuated through this manner is a multi-year journey that we undertake together with the client. And as a testament to those long-lasting relationships, in 2017, we had the opportunity to work together on Lilly's strategic review of its animal health business which culminated in the carve-out IPO and split-off of Lulanco in 2018 and then in 2019. Comparing your experiences on the guided Lulanco transactions for Eli Lilly, what has changed about how we deliver investment banking services to clients over the last few decades? And what has stayed constant for you? Well, the strength of relationship part has stayed constant. The fact that we have such a strong relationship with Lilly is a constant. Now, our capabilities were such that on the Elanco deal, we were able to play a clear leadership role, which was fabulous. It's really a fun time to work with a company, although when they're taking a division and creating a new public company, you get to think about things really holistically. You get to think about the right capital structure for the company, the right governance and board setup. When is the right story for debt and equity investors around the new business? How long after an IPO should the stock season before you consider how to do the rest of the separation for it to be a tax-free distribution to shareholders? You need to separate 80 plus percent of the company. And the split off is just where parent company shareholders can elect to change and exchange some of their shares for the new co-shares. And it's a 
really exciting time and you get to work hand in hand with both the parent company and the new co. That transaction went really well for both sides. Absolutely. It's extremely rewarding to see both companies thrive and prosper as they each become a separate, independently operated entity. Yeah. And Robbie, having been an advisor on M&A transactions for many clients, I'd love to hear your perspective on experiencing M&A as a business leader. You had oversight of our global healthcare investment banking practice in the 2000s, which is a period of change and growth for that franchise. So could you tell us about what was it like to steer the business due to integration of Chase, H&Q, Bear Stearns? I really think my leadership experiences inside J.P. Morgan and working through some of the transactions that we've had have helped me become a better advisor to clients on M&A matters. So, you know, we've always been very focused on confirming the strategic rationale of a transaction, thinking about the people dynamics, obviously in a very objective manner, thinking very carefully about valuation and making sure it can work for shareholders and, and all the stakeholders involved. But it really wasn't until... I started on the J.P. Morgan side, and right after the tech bubble burst, Chase acquired J.P. Morgan. And Chase had already acquired an emerging growth investment bank called Hammer and Quist prior to that. And it was at that time in the early 2000s that I was first asked to play a clear leadership role in our healthcare business, and I was asked to run that business. We had people from three different healthcare groups coming together. We made all the hard decisions up front which was really healthy. And we were able to quickly move beyond referring to each other as Heritage, J.P. Morgan, Heritage Chase, and Heritage Hamrick and Quist, and become one team. One of the things I'm proudest of, though, is that chose to set a different strategic objective for the company. Having started at Alex Brown and seen the emerging growth investment banking business way back then and seen what existed at H&Q, it was clear to me that we could really differentiate ourselves from our chief competitors with large clients if we had a much better bridge from the best multinational healthcare companies in the world down to the most exciting disruptive companies that are true innovators. So we really kept that bridge alive. We invested in that bridge and that's been huge for us. It's helped us develop our clear leadership in IPOs in the healthcare side. And I think seeing some of the opportunities that that transaction created for us and some of the challenges from a people standpoint to work through did make me a better advisor. And then so when the financial crisis hit in 2008 and nine, and the Federal Reserve asked J.P. Morgan Chase to step in at Bear Stearns, again, that was a time where we were able to come together and Bear Stearns had some real talent in their healthcare group. Several of those had become really clear leaders in our business. And just really talented entrepreneurial folks that have added a lot. So we've always been comfortable thinking about best people and looking to the future that way. And I think it's made us better advisors to our clients. Speaking of looking to the future, being prepared for change is certainly a high priority for many businesses this year. Robbie, what are your current priorities for the year ahead? The future is always uncertain, but there are clearly many more variables at play now with coming out of the pandemic and supply chain issues and inflation and, and the prospect of a recession, not to mention geopolitical environment, including Ukraine, having a strong balance sheet, protecting your best people and your best projects, but also where appropriate, not taking unnecessary risk, but adding to your future by growth and new technologies is something we're carefully working through with our clients. The volatility makes the job and the decisions harder to make, but they likely could have quite good rewards if they're carefully pursued. Absolutely. As we approach the end of this episode, I wanted to touch on one of your passions outside of work. As a healthcare investment banker, 
We already heard about your conviction in the power of innovation to do good in the world. You have carried that interest into your personal life as well. Could you tell us a bit more about your volunteer work? Sure. My wife Lisa and I have been married over 30 years. We've had a high focus on the not-for-profit side on both education and healthcare. The Hastings Center is one example of that. It's the oldest biomedical ethics institute in the U.S. I'm a board member there. They have done some really great work in the past. For example, they helped develop and roll out the Living Will, which has been such a great comfort to families and helped the healthcare system enormously. When you're on a transplant list, for example, they think about the ethics about patient selection for limited resources like organ transplant. And coming through COVID, it was really clear again: citizens in a lower socioeconomic environment often don't get the proper resources and face the brunt of medical situations. There's a lot of ethicists there, and scientists, and wonderful people. And to bring my healthcare orientation, but a business orientation, has been a plus. One other. Thing Lisa and I are watching the epidemic that's across the world. We've started paying a lot of attention to anxiety, especially in kids. When Lisa's actually a former lawyer, but is now up at Columbia studying, getting her master's in clinical psychology, and we hope in the future to do something in the area of kids' mental health, particularly in underserved neighborhoods, just don't have the right resources. Healthcare is high impact, and it affects us all. And it's one of the luckiest things I ever did was. Choose to come to J.P. Morgan and choose to focus on healthcare because I hold my clients in really high esteem, and what they're trying to do and have been able to do for the world has been excellent. And there's a lot of improvement that needs to happen, though. Anything humans imperfect, and we have a lot more work to do. Looking forward to doing our small part of that. Certainly, a lot to look forward to. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us.、It、has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. That's all for this episode of Conversations with Dealmakers. Stay tuned for the next part of this series as we continue the dialogue with the makers behind the deals and delve into the stories behind the headlines. We look forward to having you join us for the next conversation. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe to What's the Deal as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow J.P. Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of J.P. Morgan Securities LLC and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.